pray with me. Lord, the grass will fade, the flowers will wither, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Would you bless the reading of your word, we pray in your name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be together. Welcome again to those worshiping online with us. And um, we're continuing our series through the book of Acts this summer. But today we're going to begin a sub-series within that, which I'm going to call Different Callings, But One Spirit. And over the course of the next five weeks, we're going to focus on five different people and notice how God uses different people and powers this unique, diverse body of Christ to fulfill the mission of the church. And today we're going to look at this story of, of Stephen. Now, we heard the first part of this text today. Stephen was commissioned as a deacon, uh, but was known for his power and his grace, working powerfully for the early church. But in the scene today, we see that he faces some substantial opposition. They stir the people up against Stephen. And for those of you who are familiar with the rest of the story, we know that this ends in Acts chapter 7 with his stoning. And he becomes the first Christian martyr. I want to explore this story with you today. And I have to say that at first, as I've been preparing today, I've struggled to know how to preach this text. How to, how to connect this with us. Because on the one hand... We don't face the type of intense pressure and pain that Stephen encounters in this text. And I, I want to be cautious that we don't over-align ourselves with him and, and so doing trivialize the, the pain of his martyrdom and the pain of many others in our world who still face this type of persecution. There were more martyrs for the Christian faith in the 20th century than all the previous centuries combined. And so this is a contemporary issue. And perhaps one of the words of this text is for us to simply be praying for our brothers and sisters who face this type of pain and violence. And it just doesn't feel right for us to overly compare ourselves to Stephen. And I've been wrestling with how to preach this. But at the, at the same time, I, I wonder if this text could actually humble us a little bit and, and realize, help us realize that if Stephen, in the face of this type of intensity, discovered God with him, discovered courage, that that might hearten us and encourage us for some of the other trials, the, the lesser struggles, but the trials nonetheless that we face. The conflicts that we bump up against. Where, where is God in that as we, we navigate these challenges? I'm wondering how you feel about conflict. How you respond to these types of scenarios where, where maybe you're falsely accused or where you face uh, injustice or false testimony. Psychologists have long said that there's two extremes. Some of us prefer and revel in the fight. And others of us prefer flight. <laughs> for some of us, the danger is aggression. And for some of us, the danger is avoidance. And I wonder where you find yourself on that spectrum today. I won't make you raise hands. Don't worry. 
I think I shared a metaphor a few months back. It's kind of a silly one, but you'll remember it. Uh, and I heard this in a marriage conference once, that some of us are like rhinos, and some of us are like hedgehogs. And so the rhino is the plow forward, leaving wreckage in its wake, and the hedgehog, at the first sign of danger, runs and burrows into the ground. There's the aggression and avoidance. In Stephen's witness to us, we discover what I, I see is this third way forward as we step into hard places, places of conflict, places of injustice, where we see this beautiful prophetic courage that is committed to truth and yet is guided by the Spirit and by love. And I, I, as we tell his story, look at his response to this injustice, I want to discover some principles for how we might harness that role of prophetic courage to speak into hard things, to face conflict in a way that holds together both truth and love. And so the first thing that I notice in Stephen's response, and we didn't read the whole text, but I'm going to refer to his response to the the story that was read, is we see that Stephen, in the face of falsehood and injustice, is deeply guided by the word of God. He is guided by scripture. If you read chapter 7 of Acts from verses 1 all the way up to the end to around verse 53 or 54, he responds to these accusations of blasphemy against Moses and the law by telling the whole story of scripture, this big arc of how God has worked from Abraham to Joseph to Moses. He tells the whole story. And there's a couple of things that I notice about how Stephen responds with the word of God. And the first thing that I noticed this week is that Stephen's response would not fit on a Twitter post. And it would not fit as a Facebook update. <laughs> and there's something instructive to me about, about Stephen's response to these hard conversations is he does not reduce it to a simple talking point. He will not be reduced to a proof text. But he complicates the matter in a beautiful way and saying, if we want to talk about Scripture, let's put things in the bigger story, in the bigger context of Scripture. Because, friends, we can sometimes, if we are careful, get lost in the weeds of Scripture and miss the whole point and miss the the big picture. This is a a quote from David Nival. David Nival was a very formative person in the foundation of our denomination. If you go to North Park Seminary, our seminary there, you'll see David Nival Hall, a very influential theologian and, and leader in the Covenant Church. I love this metaphor that he uses. He says, the Bible is a world that should be studied with a telescope rather than a microscope. What a loss it would be to study the stars or the northern lights with a magnifying glass. The scriptures need to be studied with a telescope, not a microscope. Now, I want to just pause here and say it is very appropriate when we're studying an individual text to to go deep in it and understand the words and the grammar, and we can go kind of narrow in one point. But it's important for us, as Nival said, to put things in the bigger story of scripture. The bigger story of scripture. And this is what Stephen does. They accuse him of not following the law to a T. And they're seeing his ministry happening outside the bounds of the temple, which they have highly controlled. And they have all these rules of worship. And they're saying, you are being blasphemous to the law and to our rituals of worship. 
And Stephen responds by pulling out the frame and saying, well, wait a minute, let's see how God has been at work throughout our story. He talks about Moses and how God was very much alive before this temple was formed. That God cannot be bound to this literal box that we have put him in. And he speaks about how they have often missed the point of the word of God. This is his conclusion at the end of the speech. You have received the law, but you have not obeyed it. William Loder summarizes his speech in this way, saying, Stephen called into question a way of handling scripture and tradition which appeared strict and devout, but denied ultimately the central concerns of the scripture. These strict, devout people kept it to a letter at one level. They kept the law, the scripture, but at a deeper level, they failed to keep it. They failed to grasp the heart of scripture. I think Stephen is instructive to us as we engage these hard conversations, these disagreements we have about theology and about how we speak into real issues of the day. Can we see the big story of Scripture and allow individual text to interpret, uh, be interpreted by the broader story? I'll give you an example. It was not too long ago, unfortunately, in the history of our country that Scripture was used to endorse slavery. That people through a microscopic lens could pull out a phrase that says, Slaves obey your master and say, Ah, see in that? There's a biblical endorsement for, for this action. But Stephen would say, well, let's not read the scripture with a microscope, but a telescope. And he'd want us to go back to the book of Genesis where we said that human beings were created in the image of God. And so any type of ideology that says they are less than, that they are property, does not align with how God has created them. And then we'd go to the story of Moses and hear that God has heard the cries of those who are enslaved and oppressed and desires to set them free. And we hear that beautiful heart of God in the Exodus story. We'd go to Jesus and hear his proclamation in Luke 4, I have come to proclaim good news to the captives. And then we'd read Paul when he said, there is now no longer slave nor free. And that big picture, that big telescopic view of the ark of God's heart would then allow us to understand what is Paul saying in this microscopic text that has been pulling out of the context. And we'd see and we'd discover that Paul doesn't endorse slavery. He's speaking in a context where it's deeply entrenched and there's no uh, hope on the horizon of this economic system being overturned. And so he's encouraging the disciples that they still can live for Christ even in this place, but he is not endorsing slavery. Friends, we need, like Stephen, in these hard conversations to see the big picture and put the individual text in that story. This is what Jesus tells us, right? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I love this at the end. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Stephen, I, Jesus kind of had a sense of humor, I think, with these metaphors. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Stephen responds to these hard conversations, these accusations of blasphemy by his deep immersion in the whole story of Scripture. May that guide some of the, the hard conversations we have, the conflicts we face. 
to, to go deep in these and, and read the scriptures together in their context. But here's the second point I want to note about Stephen, is that he is not only guided by a deep theological knowledge, but he's also guided by a deep experiential encounter with God. He is guided by the Holy Spirit. Throughout this text, we discover that Stephen not only knows about God and about the Scripture, but he knows God very personally, very experientially. The whole story began when we heard that he was filled with power and grace. They're having trouble actually finding fault for him because of his integrity and his wisdom. Did he notice at the end of the reading that they looked at him and they saw the face of an angel? We see in Stephen someone who not only is informed by the scriptures, but has been transformed by the Spirit. His very image conformed into the likeness of God. And friends, that points to someone who has had a profound encounter with God's Spirit, an experience of God's presence. In Acts 7.55, we read, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does this speak to the challenge we face in conflict and injustice? How does this encounter with the Holy Spirit guide us into these hard places? And there's a couple things I notice about Stephen. A couple, a couple of ways about how this experiential encounter with the Spirit equips him and forms him to navigate these hard places. And the first thing that I think his experience of the Spirit does is it forms within him authenticity. His witness comes with authenticity because what he says aligns with who he is. And that brings a credibility to his prophetic witness, even in the face of opposition. There is a deep authenticity to Stephen's message. Ralph Waldo Emerson has a, has a beautiful quote about the power of authenticity. And, and he says this. He says, The reason why anyone refuses his assent to your opinion is in you. He refuses to accept you as the bringer of truth because though you think you have it, he feels that you have it not. You have not given him the authentic sign. The authentic sign. Emerson's talking about how we have influence in, in, in conversations and in conflict. And he says, people are looking for that authenticity. Do you mean what you say? Do you practice what you preach? It's an important word for us as we speak into a, a culture that I think is often hostile to our message. People are looking for the authentic sign. Do we actually believe what we say? Have we encountered this? Has it captured our heart? Rick Warren once said, as an observation of the contemporary church, that sometimes the body of Christ can function like a big talking head with its arms and legs cut off. <laughs> and what he means by that is there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of speech and, and language, and, and we talk about issues we're passionate about, but do our arms and legs, do our actions align and follow, thereby forming authenticity to our witness? 
This comes from his encounter, his being filled with the Spirit, not just informed, but transformed by God's Spirit. The second thing that I notice about Stephen's experiential encounter with God and how this forms him for this moment is that it it not only establishes his authenticity, but it also establishes his identity. It establishes his identity. That he is able to courageously stand up to all his opposition, which, honestly, if I was him, I would be in a hedgehog moment. Like, let's run away and bury ourselves in the sand because they are about to pick up stones. As he stares into this angry mob that is calling him to renounce his views, he maintains courage, and I believe it is because he knows who is really his judge. He's standing before all these human judges who are condemning him, but he has this beautiful moment. I want to go back to this verse. In the face of all this opposition, full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up to heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is uh, how N.T. Wright observes this scene. And I I think this is a really beautiful observation. He says, The human judges might be condemning Stephen to death, but the heavenly court was finding in his favor. The human judges all around him are condemning him, but he has the spiritual sight, the, the air is cleared, and he sees who is really on the throne. And because he is established in that identity, he knows that he, he is a God's and that God looks upon him and, and that it is his authority that really matters. He does not bow to these human authorities. And this, friends, is the fruit of his encounter with God. As God opens his eyes to this deeper truth. And friends, I think this, this might speak some guidance to us as we step into those places of confrontation Because it's very easy for us to root our identity in the opinions and perspectives of other people. That we care what people think, right? That's normal. My spiritual director said, I only know one person who doesn't, and he was kind of a jerk, right? So it's okay if we wrestle with this, right? We care how people think, right? But we don't want to make sure that's the the source of our identity, Because as another mentor of mine said, if we do that, we function like a dog at a Whistler's convention. I've never heard that metaphor before. But a dog that's at a Whistler's convention, someone's blowing a whistle and we run over there and someone's blowing a whistle and we run over there and we're just like at the mercy of everybody's commands. When we root our identity in the opinions of others. And Stephen maintains composure and courage even as he is facing this panel of people who are condemning him. Why? Because he sees who is really on the throne. And that assures his true identity. It's what God thinks that matters, not what other people say. And so his prophetic courage is formed through this experiential encounter as he's filled with the Spirit. That establishes his authenticity and his identity. The last thing I notice that I want to just point out as we seek to cultivate this 
prophetic courage that speaks truth and love is that his truth is balanced by a deep grace even for his enemies. Even for his enemies. As Stephen is being stoned. And we just need to pause and realize like the brutality of this. There's a detail where it says that those who were stoning him took off their tunics and, and placed them down because they were getting hot. They're probably a couple hours into this. It's just a brutal scene. And, and there's this angry mob, and they're not letting up on Stephen. And Stephen looks at them, and he says, he fell on his knees, and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, he's not saying this isn't sin. (laughs) But he pleads for their mercy in the face of this deep pain that they are inflicting on him. And friends, I'm just just humbled by this. (laughs) And I think this is really the, the product of his encounter with the Spirit because we can't manufacture this from our our own human strength. But this instructs how we ought to respond to our enemies. We see a person who has been discipled by Jesus, who modeled this himself on the cross. I think I've shared this uh, perhaps before, but there's an important difference, friends, between a prophet and a critic. And the difference is that the critic, the ones who likes to speak truth, but the critic likes to destroy their opponent. They want to kind of slam dunk on them. (laughs) They want to expose them and destroy them with an argument. That's what a critic does. And friends, honestly, I just think that culturally... That's what's forming us. If we're just immersed in our bigger culture, we are being formed as critics because that's what we see on cable news. That's what we see in social media. We go beyond the step of pointing out truth to this point of like wanting to just completely destroy our opponents. There's no humility anymore. There's no grace anymore, right? But a prophet is different. And the difference between a critic and a prophet is that a prophet still loves the people that they're speaking truth to. They have a heart for the people. They still hold on to this truth that these people, even in their sin and brokenness, are made in the image of God. And so Stephen looks at these people who are stoning them, and he says, Father, do not hold this against them. What a a convicting testimony to us. As Paul has told us, we are to speak the truth in love. We do need to speak truth. There is injustice in this world. There are things that are wrong. This is a a broken world. But as we do so, can we speak in a way that is redemptive, not destructive? And that holds holds on to the hope that those we disagree with might encounter God's grace and be changed and formed. I'm reading a book by Ronald Rollheiser right now, and he has a powerful chapter where he was called the, the Spirituality of Justice and Peacemaking. And he writes this. One of the reasons why the world is not responding more to our challenge to justice is that our actions for justice themselves often mimic the very violence, injustice, 
hardness and egoism they are trying to challenge. Our moral indignation very often leads to the replication of the behavior that aroused the indignation. It's kind of a mouthful. I'll maybe email some of these quotes out to you. (laughs) But what, what Rollheiser is saying is that we need to be careful that our confrontation with immorality and justice doesn't actually mimic, mimic the same kind of violence and, and hardness. And, and we end up kind of creating, recreating the very things we're confronting. There's this irony. And so that our truth-telling must be formed by grace and formed by a love for those that we disagree with so that we might speak the truth in love. So I think about, I think about Stephen and, and how we might grow into this calling of being formed with this beautiful scriptural imagination to be able to be someone who could speak truth and love. And, and I just keep coming back to this statement. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Humbled by this text, I just realized that we need, friends, the Holy Spirit to come upon us to form us and equip us to be a different kind of witness in our world. And so as we conclude our service, I want to just invite us to turn to God and in humility call upon our need for him. We're going to sing a song that just reminds us that it is not I, but Christ in me that is our hope, that strengthens us. So would you join me in prayer? Let's respond by asking that God would form us to be witnesses like Stephen in this world. Gracious God, we acknowledge our need for your help as we seek to speak the truth and love. We thank you for the witness of Stephen and for those around the world today who face a similar peril. Lord, we, we pray for the martyrs around the world today. For those who are suffering deeply, would you uphold them? May they see the hope that you are on the throne and that while human judges condemn them, there is a hope beyond even death itself. Lord. And for us, too, to a lesser degree, Lord, as we step into hard things this week and and challenges, we pray that you would now just fill us again with your spirit, that we might be filled with courage and with grace and with hope. We pray this in your name. Amen.